True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The Ford Anglia rumbles at the side of the road as the young woman peers in the window. Her mind is already on the fun she's going to have with her mom that night, and this lift is just a means to an end. But when she sees his eyes, something in her stomach clenches. He's been drinking, and suddenly this doesn't seem like such a good idea anymore. She could just turn around and walk away, take the bus home like she usually does, but she convinces herself that everything will be okay. He'll drive her straight home. She'll arrive safely and then she can spend the evening with her mom. As the heavy door of the Anglia slams shut on the passenger side, though, nothing will ever be okay again. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 109, The Murder of Myrna Joy Aiken. Hey, True Crime South Africa listeners. I'd like to tell you about a brand new South African podcast called Your Mom with Skulk. I love how the podcast landscape in South Africa is expanding, and I'm really pleased to be a part of that. The content in True Crime South Africa's episodes can be a little bit heavy, though, so I think it makes complete sense to balance that out with some light-hearted fun. Skulk Bezadenhout is genuinely one of my favorite comedians and personalities. And now, he has his own podcast. Hello there, all you crime junkies, you sickos. It's Skulk Bezadenhout here. I'm sorry to interrupt the murder or the robbery or whatever heinous crime Nicole is telling you about. But I just wanted to tell you quickly about a new podcast that I'm hosting called Your Mom with Skulk. Hello, Minsa, and welcome to Your Mom with Skulk, a brand new podcast by Telltale Media, hosted by me, Skulk Poseidon. Now, on this show, we're going to journey deep into the lives of really lucky people. Some of them are my friends. Some of them I wish were my friends. But I don't want to speak to these exceptional people, these celebrities directly. I mean, here, look at me. I think we are all so tired of listening to celebrities. Everyone and their mother, excuse the pun, has a podcast where they interview celebrities. So we're not going to speak to the celebrities directly, but rather about the celebrities through the people that know them better than anyone, which is, of course, their mothers. I am sitting here, Mensa, in the house of Tony Gale Goliath. I am sitting in the house of Jack Barrow, Bertus Basson, Simone Pretorius in our ongelooflike maat Tani Tinkie. Le Klaus. Le Klaus. Le Klaus. Oh, sorry, my bad. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> the woman of the hour for me is the queen. The queen. Because my favorite words are f***ing you know <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for the journalists to hear that. This is who I want to speak to. Their mothers. Your favorite word is f***. 
but you don't like tattoos. Nee, fuck. Dit is nou rechtig die einde. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or check us out at telltale.media forward slash skulk. I mean, it would be a crime not to. <laughs> anyway, back to you, Nicole. Thank I highly recommend you go follow Skulk's podcast right now on whatever platform you're listening on. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank those listeners who've supported the show through Patreon or PayPal recently. A huge thank you goes out to Sandra, Marinette Cruz, Jocelyn Moyes, Alicia Massaro, Joanne Palmer, and Hendrik Klopper for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to get an exclusive episode every month, as well as ad-free versions of every week's episode, check out the link to Patreon in the show notes and sign up for a minimum of $1, which is about the same price as a loaf of bread right now. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors, including King Online and Wallpaper Online, by using the discount code TCSA10 or True Crime respectively when purchasing on their websites, and you'll get a 10% discount too. Or you can support me as an individual creator by purchasing my book Samurai Sword Murder in hard copy, ebook or audiobook formats, as well as the audiobook I narrated for Yana Marks of the Krugersdorp Cult Murders. Non-financial support is just as valuable, so please share and invite your friends to listen. This week's episode takes us back to the 1950s, 67 years ago to be precise. Vintage true crime. I don't often do cases this old, but occasionally I think there's value in going back there. Value in telling these really old stories, where for the most part, Everyone directly impacted is long gone. The victim in this case would have been in her 80s now. Her siblings, as old and older. Her parents, long deceased. But I will tell you that I've actually gotten requests for this case to be covered. From people who lived in the area at the time. They were just children then. But this case left a deep imprint on their memories. Some don't even remember it firsthand. They were told about it by their parents. Just ten years ago, someone wrote a book about this crime. A man who, like so many others, could never get this case out of his head. And so, it seems clear that despite its age, this murder is still very relevant in many lives. It's those ripples, the ones that spread out from a single act of violence, no matter when it happens. The ripples are always the same, as broad, as deep, and as disruptive. In researching this case, I used the Benjamin Bennett book, Murder Will Speak, and a few media articles. So let's get into episode 109, The Murder of Myrna Joy Aiken. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, 
please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Myrna Joy Aiken, who was known as Joy, was born in 1938. She grew up in Pinetown, in what is now KwaZulu-Natal, and lived with her parents in Main Road there. She had one brother, Colin, and after she finished high school, she started working at British Motors in Smith Street, Durban. Even today, in Facebook groups dedicated to the community of Pinetown, Joy is remembered as a young lady who was beautiful, inside and out. She was bubbly and outgoing and popular, but also seemed to be wise beyond her years, with a healthy scepticism of people, particularly men, who seemed to be too good to be true. A few months into her first job at British Motors, the scepticism would be put to the test, when a new salesman started calling at the company. Clarence van Buren was 33 years old, and Joy recognized him the minute he walked into the office. He'd been at her parents' house a few weeks before to repair a radio, and she'd taken an immediate dislike to the man. He was just too suave. Although she couldn't deny he was a good-looking man, he was also extremely arrogant, and far too much of a smooth talker. That initial interaction had gone down very differently with Van Buren, though, and he would later admit that he'd found the girl, who was 15 years his junior, very attractive. Although her initial experience with Van Buren had not been positive, Joy noticed that the other women in the office seemed drawn to him. His charisma seemed magnetic to many, and men equally seemed to enjoy his company. Joy was civil with Van Buren, wondering if perhaps she was being too hard on him. Of course, she had no idea about the man's background, and that her gut was entirely spot on. When Clarence van Buren started at Global Electrical as a salesman, he was coming off a rather bad run of things. Well, really, most of Clarence van Buren's life had been a rather bad run of things. The man had his first brush with the law when he was just 16 years old. He'd been working as an apprentice fitter and turner at the time, and when he started to run with the wrong crowd in Durban, he was sent to Johannesburg to work on the mines, in the hope that he would straighten himself out. Unfortunately, the opposite happened, and Van Buren began stealing cars to take for joyrides. He was eventually caught and sent back to Durban to a reformatory school for boys. For the most part, all this experience did was reinforce every negative quality Clarence had. Clarence van Buren, even as a 16-year-old, was described as an extremely narcissistic young man. His narcissistic traits came out in ideas of grandeur about who he was and how important he was and the irony about people like this is that often their charisma and general ability to charm others reinforces these ideas of grandeur they have about themselves, because people do really love being around them. Until they get to know them, of course. For Clarence, the reformatory became a stage upon which he could build the persona he was creating. 
He was soon appointed as head prefect, and the power this gave him was clearly intoxicating. Those who attended the reformatory with him would recall how van Buren had taken every opportunity he could, and even fabricated a few transgressions to discipline pupils in his position as head prefect. His punishments often veered into sadism, and he seemed to enjoy humiliating especially the younger boys. The boys' reformatory boarded a girls' facility of the same nature, and van Buren was very popular with the girls there. He played a few musical instruments extremely well, and this, along with his good looks and air of confidence, gave him an almost star-like presence. Van Buren was appointed as chairman of the drama club, but he had no interest in actually acting in performances. Rather, he used it as another way to be in charge and control people. He decided who filled which roles on stage, so everyone had to be in good standing with him in order to get a good part. In many ways, the close to two years that van Buren spent in the reformatory would be the best of his life. He'd had everything he wanted there. Power, prestige, control, and an outlet for his growing sadism. When he left, everything changed. Suddenly he was no longer the top dog. He didn't even feature on anyone's radar. And rather than going back and completing his apprenticeship as a fitter and turner, Van Buren returned, almost immediately, to a life of crime. Although he was not known as the slickest of criminals, Van Buren's claim to fame in the world of thieves became that he could pick a lock in under 10 seconds. This made him rather valuable to criminal gangs in the area, and he developed a reputation for himself around this. During this time, Van Buren's popularity with women continued, but this did not translate to successful or healthy relationships at least not in the sense that most people consider relationships to be healthy and successful. Van Buren married his first wife relatively soon after he left the reformatory. That marriage lasted six weeks before his wife fled in the night. Van Buren claimed that she'd run off with another man. All things considered, this seems unlikely. He married his second wife soon after, but she too left him within just a few months. In that case, he claimed the woman had found out he was involved in criminal activities and her parents had forced her to leave him. After his second marriage and multiple convictions, which usually only resulted in very short stints in prison, fines or lashing punishments, which were still commonplace for so-called minor crimes during that time, Van Buren found himself falling foul of the law in a far bigger way. After being convicted of theft due to his extensive criminal history, in 1949, Van Buren was sentenced to five years in prison and eight lashings. During this prison stint, the man almost seemed to make a complete turnaround. He started taking technical courses that he could use to get jobs on the outside, and his aim was to become a qualified electrical and mechanical engineer. After serving his sentence, Van Buren seemed to emerge from prison a changed man. 
He claimed that even his relationships with women changed then. He married for a third time, soon after being released, and Van Buren said that this relationship was what he'd always been looking for. He claimed that his wife was fully aware of his background and loved him despite it. Things really did seem to be looking up for Clarence Van Buren. He and his wife would have two children together in the years that followed, and Clarence, for the most part, seemed to stay on the straight and narrow, although his past did follow him around, or at least he claimed it did. In the early to mid-1950s, Van Buren moved between several jobs. He would claim that the reason he had to move was always because his employer would discover his criminal past and make his working conditions difficult. An instance at one of his jobs, though, seemed to indicate that this trend might not be completely true. In 1955, Van Buren started working as a shift engineer at Umgeni Power Station in Pinetown. Soon, though, checks started disappearing from the finance manager's office. Police were called in to investigate. Van Buren swore left and right that he had nothing to do with the thefts, but claimed that he was worried it was going to be pinned on him due to his record, so he resigned. Then, in September 1956, he started working as a salesman at Globe Electrical. He, his wife and children were living in a block of flats near the Aiken family. Interestingly, in social media commentary around this case, many people have memories of the Aiken family, but no one really talks about any personal connections they had to the Van Burens. I don't know if that's because Clarence wasn't very well established in the area, or if he just drifted under the radar. The latter seems unlikely, considering how he was described as loud and arrogant. The job at Globe Electrical was quite a stroke of luck for Van Buren. The money was decent and he got a company car, a Ford Anglia, to use as well. He was given use of the company petrol accounts to fill the vehicle up too, and both these points would play a role in this case later on. Van Buren, though, didn't seem too keen on doing a good job at Globe Electrical. He would occasionally call on a few customers during the day, but for the most part, he spent a lot of time drinking in various pubs across Durban and the surrounds during the day. It was probably only going to be a matter of time until his employer discovered his behaviour and fired him, but that would be hastened by another matter entirely. On the 2nd of October 1956, Joy Aiken woke and readied herself for work. Before leaving, she laid out an outfit she planned on wearing that night. She, her mom and a friend, were going to attend dance lessons that evening, and Joy, an avid dancer, had been looking forward to the evening out for ages. As she carefully selected the dress she'd wear that night, she could barely contain her excitement. Then, with one last glance at her bedroom, she headed off to work. Joy used the bus to get to work each day. It was a short walk from her parents' home to the bus stop. That morning there was a fine mist of rain coming down. 
Joy walked a little faster, hoping to save her hairdo from spoiling, considering she'd be going out that night, and she didn't really want to have to redo it. As she walked, a Ford Anglia trundled to a stop beside her. The driver rolled down the window, and she saw with some distaste that it was Clarence van Buren. The man had annoyed her once again on his last visit to her employer by calling her Cookie. Joy was not one for terms of endearment, and definitely not from a man she barely knew. So when Van Buren offered her a lift to work, she immediately declined and carried on walking. Van Buren continued to slowly drive next to her, though, refusing to take no for an answer. Joy glanced over and saw that there was a woman in the car. Van Buren introduced her as his brother's girlfriend, and Joy started to feel a bit more at ease. She stopped and agreed to the ride. Before long, she and the woman were chatting up a storm on the way to work, and as Van Buren drove, he would occasionally chip into the conversation. His brother's girlfriend would later admit that she'd been talking about an argument she'd had with her boyfriend to Joy, and Van Buren had regularly put his two cents in about how he and his wife were arguing terribly. She said it almost seemed as though he was trying to make it clear to them that he was unhappy in his marriage. The woman said that Joy didn't really seem to take much notice of him, though, and the more she ignored his statements the more he reinforced them, which became a bit tiresome as the drive wore on. She was grateful when they arrived at her place of work, and she waved goodbye to Joy and Van Buren. Shortly afterwards, Van Buren dropped Joy off at work. By then, it seemed she felt a little more comfortable around him, and she'd started to think about the fact that if she had to take the bus home that afternoon, She'd have to rush to get ready for her evening out. But if she had a lift home, she'd have so much more time. As she got out of the car, she asked Van Buren if he'd be in the area at 5pm. And if so, could she catch a lift home with him? Van Buren allegedly said he wasn't sure where he'd be, but he'd let her know between 4.30 and 5pm either way. The way the day proceeded for the two from there is documented in court records, as the importance of both accounts would later become clear. After dropping Joy off, Van Buren seemed to be on a roll of being helpful, and he gave a lift to two young men he saw walking on the side of the road. Those two young men would later testify that they'd been in the vehicle and one had seen a box of ammunition in Van Buren's glove compartment. He'd asked the man if he had a rifle, and Van Buren had replied he had a pistol. He pulled out a Beretta and showed it to the boys. He told them he also had a thirty-eight automatic under the seat. The three had then stopped at a restaurant, and although Van Buren was supposed to be working, he'd had several brandies. They'd sat at the restaurant and played with the man's gun. While Van Buren was entertaining the two young men, Joy was at work. She'd broken for lunch 
and gone with her cousin to a restaurant where she'd had a hamburger and a glass of milk before returning to work. Van Buren had left the restaurant he was at with the two young men somewhere around midday, and staff would later say he'd been gone for several hours and then returned around 3.30pm. Around that same time, back at British Motors, Joy was eating the sandwiches her mother had packed for her lunch. Now, this must have been a thing back in the 1950s, and I don't know, maybe people still eat this today, but Joy had beetroot sandwiches for lunch. After googling it, I see it is actually still a thing, and I guess you live and learn. But the point is that those beetroot sandwiches would become hugely important although she could have no idea as she was tucking into them. Between 4.30 and 5pm, Joy's co-worker would later testify that Joy had received a telephone call. When she got off the phone, she told the co-worker she'd managed to secure a lift home that afternoon so she wouldn't have to take the bus. Joy seemed pleased at the arrangements, but didn't add any more information than that. At 5pm sharp, she tidied up her desk, said her goodbyes to her co-worker, and left the building. The last time Myrna Joy Aiken was seen alive, she was getting into the Ford Anglia driven by Clarence van Buren, just past 5pm, outside British Motors. When Joy didn't arrive home that night for the dance lessons she'd been so excited to attend, her mother immediately knew something was wrong. Her parents telephoned several work colleagues, who told them that she'd made it to work, and she'd left the office at 5pm as usual. By that evening, the parents were already on the phone to the police, and they seemed to have taken the girl's disappearance seriously from the outset. By the next morning, when there was still no sign of joy, the officers were at her place of work, interviewing her colleagues. Before long, they found someone who had seen her get into the Ford Anglia that afternoon, and the vehicle had been recognised as being driven by the salesman from Globe Electrical, who occasionally dropped by the office, Clarence van Buren. Police visited Van Buren's flat and his employer on the morning of the 3rd of October. Neither had seen Van Buren. His wife was more concerned than angry, but as she heard that her husband was wanted in connection with the disappearance of 18-year-old Joy Aiken, the anger took over. Although the police didn't get into any detail about what they thought might have happened, Van Buren's wife's mind clearly didn't go to anything criminal having happened. She immediately thought her husband was running about with another woman. The police didn't correct her. An angry wife, who might want to find her husband just as much as they did, was an asset to their investigation. Plus, they didn't really want the public getting wind of what they actually suspected may have happened. Clarence van Buren had a very sketchy record. He was a known womanizer, and Joy hadn't been too keen on him.
Although police were doing their best not to alarm the public too much, they had no choice but to put out a public call for information about the whereabouts of Clarence van Buren. As a result, the rumour mill began to swirl. The community was completely absorbed in the search for missing Joy Aiken. Large groups conducted searches in open expanses of bush, and Joy's parents explored every avenue they could in the hopes of finding their daughter. They could not understand what Clarence van Beren could have wanted with their child and where she could be. As the days ticked by, though, they had to admit that there was a good chance she'd come to some harm. The fact that van Beren had still not reappeared was not a good sign. As van Beren's face was plastered all around town, a few leads came in which started to paint a picture of van Beren's movements since he'd fetched Joy from work on the 2nd. At 8pm on the evening of the 2nd, van Beren had been at a petrol station where his employer had an account for petrol. The petrol attendant had confirmed from a photograph that van Beren was the man driving the Ford Anglia and that there had been no one else with him. Then, a police officer came forward to say he'd been driving on Warner Beach Road at half-past midnight on the 3rd, when he'd come across the Ford Anglia parked on the side of the road. He'd stopped and found the driver looking tired, but he didn't seem incapable of driving. The man said he was just resting, and was heading either to Port Shepston or Margate. The officer had identified the driver as Clarence van Beren, but said he'd noticed nothing untoward in the man's behaviour, so he'd left him there. Later on, though, when he was returning from his shift, he'd again seen the same car, this time parked behind the Lovo Beach Sugar Estate. He'd called out to van Beren, who seemed to get a fright, and blurted out that he was still fine, just tired. As the officer had slowly driven away, he'd seen van Buren start the car up and drive away. After that, there were no more sightings of van Buren, and police were concerned he may have fled the area. But late on the 3rd of October, Clarence van Buren did re-emerge. He walked into his flat, to the amazement of his wife, who immediately demanded to know where he'd been and where Joy Aiken was. It would emerge that Van Buren had been dropped off at the flat by a doctor who'd been driving past Umtwalumi Hotel and noticed the man standing in the rain with the hood of his car open. Van Buren had told the doctor that his gaskets had blown on his car and he was waiting for a replacement. The doctor offered to wait with him, and the men had gone for a few drinks at the hotel while they waited for the mechanic to arrive. Later, when the mechanic had arrived, he told Van Buren he'd been unable to source a gasket, and the doctor had dropped Van Buren off at his flat. Van Buren's wife said that her husband claimed to have no idea what she was talking about when she confronted him. He claimed he'd last seen Joy in town at 6pm on the 2nd of October. She'd asked him to take her there, and he knew nothing else after that. 
Van Buren's wife told him he'd better report to the police station and clear the matter up. She looked at his clothing, covered in dirt, and told him he'd better clean up before he did. The Van Buren's domestic worker would later report that when she'd arrived for work that morning, she'd found her employer had attempted to hand-wash the clothing he'd taken off. She'd felt he'd done a very poor job, so she'd re-washed them herself. She confirmed that his shirt had soil and some other substance she couldn't identify on it. Clarence Van Buren did leave his flat that morning, but he didn't go to the police station. Instead, he got on the bus and disappeared for the rest of the day. At 7pm that evening, he telephoned the police station and told them he'd be coming in to discuss Joy's whereabouts. The officers waited, but he never arrived. By October 5th, it seemed the whole of Durban was looking for both Joy and Van Buren, but both seemed to have disappeared into thin air. Then, on the 9th of October, a letter arrived at the police station. It was dated the 7th and marked as urgent. The sender, Clarence Van Buren. In the letter, Van Buren gave a version of what he said had happened on the day he collected Joy from work. Van Buren claimed that when he first collected Joy, she'd noticed that he'd been drinking. He said she was upset with him and didn't want to get into the car at first, but she'd eventually relented and gotten in. He claimed that as they drove, Joy told him that she was very unhappy at home and having issues with her parents. In the letter, Van Buren suggested that police look at this as a possible reason for her disappearance. He further claimed that on that day, Joy had asked him to drop her off at the post office because she had a parcel to post. He'd done this, and that was the last time he'd seen her. He explained that for the rest of the day, he had various alibis. He claimed immediately after dropping off Joy, he'd picked up another young man who he'd given a lift to. He'd then filled up his car with petrol. He mentioned the encounter with the police officer and then detailed how he'd accidentally reversed into a wall, and when he'd gone to attempt to bend his bumper back into place, he'd cut his wrist. He claimed that the cuts had bled profusely, and he'd felt dizzy and went to lie in the back seat of his car. There, he claimed, he'd bled onto the seat. He continued the multi-page letter in dramatic fashion insisting that he had nothing to do with Joy's disappearance, and then went on to say he felt his time on earth was coming to an end. His dramatized letter almost seemed to be a suicide note. By this point, Van Buren had somehow managed to get his work vehicle running again and dropped it off under the cover of darkness at his employer's premises. It seems he'd already assumed he no longer had a job there, and perhaps he didn't want to be charged with theft of a vehicle, considering police were already after him. When Van Buren's employer discovered the vehicle parked in their lot, they called police. In the vehicle, 
police found evidence that clearly pointed to a poor outcome for Joy. The back seat of the vehicle was covered in blood. But not just that. In the ceiling of the car, police found three bullet holes and blood spatter which someone had tried unsuccessfully to rub away. It seemed very clear that someone had been shot in the car. Police now had to break it to Joy's parents that there was a very good chance she was no longer alive. In desperation, her brother Colin approached a local retired schoolteacher who was known to have certain talents. Nelson Palmer would later say he considered his psychic abilities to be a spiritual experience. In his mind, almost like a prayer, he said. The man said he'd never before received messages such as the one he claims to have received the day Joy's brother called on him. Palmer, after going into a trance in Colin Aiken's presence, began to give directions to Joy's body. He explained that they would need to travel over two hills and she would be found near a river and in a culvert. As soon as the man came out of the trance, Joy's brother and Nelson Palmer set off to search for her body. As they neared a culvert in Umtualumi, they spotted a blood-stained rag on the stone wall of the culvert. Walking a little closer, Joy's brother saw to his horror a pair of legs sticking out of the culvert and over the wall. The naked body of Joy Aiken was discovered in the culvert. Police were called to the scene and Joy's body was taken back to the mortuary. There an autopsy was conducted, which revealed that Joy had died from three gunshot wounds to her head. Other shots seemed to have been fired at or near the body, and those bullets had broken up, leaving small pieces of copper-plated metal embedded in Joy's skin. Her buttocks had been mutilated, and, disturbingly, some of her internal organs were missing. But considering she'd been out in the bush for more than a week, the pathologist was unable to determine whether this had been due to animal activity or not. The beetroot sandwiches Joy had eaten around 3pm on the day of her disappearance were still in her stomach, partially digested. From these sandwiches, the pathologist was able to determine that Joy Aiken had been killed somewhere between 6pm and 8pm on the 2nd of October. This only served to reinforce that Clarence van Buren was the best possible suspect for this crime. He had collected Joy at 5pm, and the next known sighting of him had been at 8pm. Sure, he had, in his letter, tried to claim he had alibis for the rest of that period of time, but even in doing that, although if he hadn't killed her, he could never have known that two-hour period was crucial, he had further incriminated himself. But Van Buren was still on the run, and police now had to find him before a member of the public did. The community of Durban and Pinetown 
upon hearing that the young woman's body had been discovered, were enraged and baying for Van Buren's blood. It would emerge, though, that because he had no resources and no way to get out of town, Van Buren had been hiding in a shed on a rural property in the area all along. And on the 11th of October, he finally emerged and was spotted on the street near the police station. An officer took one look at him and recognized him immediately. He called out to the man, but Van Buren took off down the road with the officer chasing. The officer fired three shots in the man's direction, but Van Buren disappeared behind a house. Without slowing his pursuit, the officer rounded the back of the house and spotted Van Buren again, this time noticing he had his own gun in his hands. He called out again, and Van Buren stopped, threw his gun in the air, and was detained. When his gun was retrieved, it was found to have eight live rounds in it, and the safety was off. It was ready to fire, and no one could explain why Van Buren had so easily handed himself over. Perhaps he'd thought that shooting an officer would make him look like a cold-blooded killer, while handing himself over still gave him the opportunity to plead innocence, which is exactly what he'd go on to do. Van Buren would later say he'd intended to take his own life in that moment, rather than be arrested for a crime he claimed he didn't commit. But when the officer had borne down on him, he'd lost his nerve. Van Buren was arrested and taken to the police station. As soon as news began to spread that he'd been taken into custody, a crowd formed outside the police station. The group demanded that the man be handed over to them so that they could meet out the justice Joy deserved. Instead, Van Buren was spirited out the back of the police station under guard and taken to another station, one town over, for questioning. He began to retell the same story he'd relayed in his letter, but then stopped and told the officer he was tired and hungry and he'd preferred to take a rest before saying anything more. He was taken to the district surgeon, who assessed him. The cut on his wrist was relatively superficial, and the doctor would later testify in court that there was no way that such a cut could have bled as badly as Van Buren had claimed certainly not enough to cause the level of staining they'd seen on the back seat of his company car. Unfortunately, in the 1950s, there was no way to tell whose blood was whose. DNA capabilities were still about 40 years away, and the only possibility they had at that point was blood typing, which in this case was not useful because both Joy and Van Buren shared a common blood type. The district surgeon also noticed scratches on Van Buren's arms, neck and cheeks, saying that, in his experience, these could easily have been caused by fingernails. Van Buren was allowed to rest and given a meal. The next morning, he asked to speak to the investigator on the case again, and as he was brought before the man, Van Buren said he may as well throw away his previous statement because it was all a complete fabrication. He said he decided to tell the truth. 
Van Buren then launched into another tale about what had happened after he'd collected Joy on the 2nd of October. He said Joy had asked him to take her into town because she wanted to meet her boyfriend. He'd pulled up in front of a hotel and told the young woman he was going to go into the bar and have a few drinks. She'd chosen to stay in the car, he said. He claimed he'd had four drinks, and when he came outside, Joy and the car were gone. He had then wandered around for a while and found the car parked down the road. Joy had been in the back seat, dead. He told the officer, I did not shoot Joy Aiken. And although Van Buren would go on to change his story slightly yet again when he gave an official confession to a magistrate later that day, that one sentence remained exactly the same. And it was almost all the police needed to hear. From the day Joy's body had been found, her cause of death had been kept confidential. No one, not even her parents, knew at that point that she'd been shot. Her body had been so decomposed that those who'd found her would not have been able to tell by looking at her that she'd been shot either. So the only people that would have known were the police officers close to the case, the pathologist, and Joy's killer. Each time Van Buren changed his story, he did so with just enough detail to try and make up the timeline he was now discovering the police had. But again, there were always details he didn't realize were available to police, that when skewed in his clear fabrication, became blatant red flags of his guilt. Essentially, Van Buren was claiming that he'd left Joy in his vehicle, someone had abducted her, killed her in his car, and then driven the car back to the spot where he'd left it. He claimed that he'd been afraid because he had a criminal record, so he hadn't called police, and instead he'd driven Joy's body out to where she'd been found, undressed her, and dumped her in the culvert. He made several pointings out to officers, including the place where he'd burned some of Joy's clothing. The timeline Van Buren tried to provide did not make sense. He was clearly giving that timeline as he thought it would provide an unknown third party with enough time to kill the woman and then put him elsewhere at the time of her death. The police knew she died between 6 and 8 p.m. They also knew that at 8 p.m. Van Buren was at a petrol station filling up his company car. When questioned about this, he claimed in one of his versions that he had been filling up, but the attendant must have been wrong about the time, and he also claimed that when he was at the petrol station, Joy's body was still in the car. The attendant would deny this, and said the petrol station was well lit, and he would definitely have noticed a dead body in the back of the car. Police believed, and when the trial of Clarence Van Buren started, the prosecutor would also present that Van Buren had killed Joy within less than two hours of picking her up that night. They believed he'd fetched her, and always intended to have some sort of sexual liaison with her. 
He may have hoped it would be consensual, but he'd also clearly been prepared for the opposite. They believed that he'd propositioned Joy, and when she'd turned him down, he'd threatened her with his gun. He'd then driven her out to a deserted area and very likely raped her, and then killed her in the back seat of his car. Sadly, there was no way to prove that Joy had been raped, but the prosecutor pointed out that the mutilation of her buttocks, the fact that she was found naked, and the fact that Van Buren had burned her underwear all indicated a clear sexual motive for the crime. The trial was an enormous event in Durban, with new headlines being printed each day about the previous day's testimony in court. The Aiken family attended each day of the trial, and Mrs. Aiken cried as she confirmed that the dress her daughter had been wearing was the one being held up to her in an evidence bag. She also told the courts the one thing that Van Buren had not known, which completely disproved his claims that Joy had asked to be taken into town that day. She told the courts of the dance lesson they had planned that night, and how excited her daughter had been. They'd been looking forward to the evening for months, and she knew that there was no way Joy would have missed it of her own free will. Although the prosecution did not mention that a psychic's tip had led to the discovery of Joy's body, the defense attorney did drop several jokes about it. Nelson Palmer did take the stand as a witness to the discovery of Joy's body, though. I do want to say that in a book written in 2013 by a man who'd been rather obsessed with this case his entire life, and also on the Pinetown Facebook group, Several people discount the claims that Nelson Palmer's vision led to the discovery of Joy's body. Many people say that the location of her body had already been narrowed down by public search parties and police, and the vague directions Palmer gave could really have taken them anywhere. Either way, Palmer's alleged role in this case would go down in the annals of history as fact. But whether you believe it or not is entirely up to you. Although Clarence van Buren had refused to take part in the theatre group he'd headed up in school, he did a pretty good job of attempting the role of the wronged man on the stand during his trial. He gripped a rosary throughout his testimony, often wept, and on occasion slammed his fist into the bench to get his point across about how unfairly he felt he was being treated. As the prosecutor pressed him on the finer details of his story, though, and he unraveled, the mask started to slip, and it was soon clear who Clarence von Beeren really was. Although he tried to fill his timeline with numerous trips to several different bars on the night of the murder, no one who worked at those bars had recognized him. On the 26th of February 1957, the judge delivered his verdict. He found that Van Buren's story was not credible, 
and that there was absolutely no possibility that someone would have driven Joy away, killed her, and then returned the car with the body in it to the exact spot they'd stolen it from. The physical evidence also showed it was very likely that Clarence van Beren was Joy's killer. Although van Beren's attorney would attempt to show that there were mitigating factors in the crime and pointed out that van Beren had never committed any other violent crimes, the judge could not see any reason to deviate from the harshest sentence available. Death by hanging. Clarence van Beren wept as the judge handed down his death sentence. As van Beren awaited the hangman's noose in prison, a group of people on the outside who still believed in his innocence made one last-ditch attempt to prove it. One man, just an ordinary citizen, who'd convinced himself that van Beren was innocent, travelled hundreds of kilometres and practically spent his entire life savings reinvestigating the entire case. He presented a petition with the evidence he felt could exonerate van Beren to the Governor-General, but his attempts bore no fruit. There were others, too, who claimed to have inside information about the case, but none of them would go on record when asked. And despite all of these efforts, by the time van Beren's date of execution arrived on the 10th of June 1957, there was no hope that he would receive a stay in his hanging. On that day, which was also the day before his 34th birthday, van Beren was visited one last time by his family. He continued to claim his innocence, and his last words were to a reporter. He said, quote, To the murderer of Miss Aiken, whoever you are, and wherever you are, May it be seared across your conscience forever that you sent an innocent man to the gallows today. I never hurt a woman in my life. I did not kill Miss Aiken. Her murderer lives, and knowing I'm going to die, he hasn't the guts to give himself up. End quote. Many believe that Van Beren, as narcissistic as he was, could not allow his image to be tarnished in public by admitting his guilt. He would rather go down in history as the man who was hanged while claiming innocence, despite a mountain of evidence against him, than go down as the man who'd stolen the life of a young woman simply because she refused to have sex with him. Shortly after uttering his final words, Van Beren was walked up to the gallows, had a black hood placed over his head to hide the ghastly expression his face was about to contort into, and then a noose was placed over his neck, and he was hung until he was dead. A prime example of how Joy's case has continued to touch lives across the decades that followed exists in Chris Marnowick the author of the book I referenced earlier. On the day after Van Beren was executed, Chris, who was just eight years old at the time, 
walked to his grandfather's postbox and collected his newspaper. On the front page were the details of Van Buren's execution, and although the young boy couldn't quite make out all the specifics and his grandfather had to explain a bit more, on that day an obsession took root. Manowick ended up studying law because of how interested he'd become in Van Buren's case. He goes to great lengths to explain that he didn't for a minute think the man was innocent, and he still doesn't, but Joy's face almost called out to him from the newspaper that day, and multiple seeming coincidences in his life would continue to put this case in his way until he eventually relented and started writing a book about it. For him, the real question was why. Why had a man, despite having a criminal record, had never done anything violent, why had he suddenly decided to commit this horrendous crime? And Manowick thinks that he found the answer in Van Buren's own personality. The subtitle of his book is He Knew the Words But Not the Music, and he uses this to describe how a very charming and eloquent man who wrote some of the most beautiful parting letters to his family from his prison cell had absolutely no understanding of what the emotions he wrote of actually meant. Essentially, Manowick is saying Van Buren was a psychopath, and on that day in 1956, he decided that he was not going to allow Joy Aiken to refuse his advances, because in his mind, what he wanted was more important. In his mind, she had absolutely no right to refuse him, and surely everyone would understand and see where he was coming from. Chris Marnowick's expression of this case never having left him is echoed by many residents of Pinetown. They speak of the house in which the Aikens lived, how their parents would talk about joy every time they drove past there. They speak of the horror of that time, and how, even though Joy is long gone, the memory of what happened to her, how brutally she was ripped away, still lingers in so many places. Joy Aiken would have been 85 years old this year. She'd very likely have been a mother, and possibly a grandmother. She would have watched her parents grow old, and eventually leave this earth. But that would have been the natural progression of things. Instead, she is forever 18. Forever a smiling face in a black and white photograph. The dance outfit she took out on the morning of her death, the one she looked so forward to putting on later that night, was never worn. Instead, eventually, when her mother had the strength, she would slowly fold it up, piece by piece, 
holding the fabric up to her face for one last gasp of a sense that reminded her of her daughter. Her colleagues would eventually pack up her desk at work. Her first job, the one she was so keen to start, and her last. And at some point, another young woman would sit in her chair in the typist's pool, likely oblivious when her new co-worker's eyes welled up a bit at the very sight of her. And although Clarence Van Buren's life would be ended too, with every step he took up the gallows, the circle of pain came no closer to ending. With every step, that pain was passed on to his children, and they would have to live with the image of their father, the murderer, a spectre on the edge of their lives forever. Joy Aiken may well have died at the hands of a cold-hearted man 67 years ago, but the people that speak of her still prove that her memory lives on. Myrna Joy Aiken, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 109, The Murder of Myrna Joy Aiken. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.